So welcome everyone to this edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. If you are a listener, you know that we return to the subject of medical assistance in dying um, frequently on the program. It's something I'm heavily involved with in Ottawa. And so we'd like to talk to people about this issue who experience it from a lot of uh, different perspectives. So last night I went to an event. Um, I had already read the book. But this was a book launch for a book called The Last Doctor, Lessons in Living from the Front Lines of Medical Assistance in Dying. And I think that's always the balance we're looking for. So the authors of this book are Dr. Jean Marmorio and Johanna Schneller. And you are seeing them both on the screen there. The doctor is the one with the glasses on her head. Um, and <laughs> if I take them off, I lose them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Know where they are. Uh, and this book was written about her experiences. And Joanna came in as a writer, as a journalist, to look at it from that perspective and put these stories together. And I've got to say to both of you, in the first place, thank you, uh, because this is uh, this is tough stuff. Jean, it's even tough for you after all your years of practicing medicine? Um, well, it, it's a natural extension of all of the years of practicing medicine. So it, for me, um, it, it doesn't change. It, it is the practice of medicine. And fundamentally, when you are working in medicine, you are practicing. You are, you are always practicing because you're never going to get perfect. It just doesn't <laughs> happen no matter how hard we try but that's the truth. And it was a decision for you. Um, you tell the story that really you had been doing everything. You were a nurse. You were working uh, uh, with those with mental illness. You became a doctor. You were delivering babies by the bazillions, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. And then you heard of the decision by the Supreme Court and, and some penny dropped in your doctor brain there that said it was, it was more, it was more like a, a two ton brick. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I, I think as I, I mentioned last night, nine to zero unanimous Supreme court decision. Yeah. I mean, a unanimous decision in anything yeah. just doesn't happen. So for, for that most revered and highest body of justice in the land to kind of go nine to zero, how do you get nine judges all on side to say the criminal code, the thing that made helping people die illegal and, and subject to criminal charge and prison, um, as has happened with Kevorkian, I think, when in those days, uh, it certainly happened with Morgenthaler around the abortion rights issues, um, to actually stand in defense of, of, of a woman's right to, to not proceed with a pregnancy and for someone who had sort of a sense of what their life was and how they wanted to end it, to say that was a criminal offense if you helped them. Um, had to be changed. And by gosh, it happened in my lifetime. And I didn't think it would. Yeah. Uh, I don't think any of us did. And I think many of us still today are wishing that 
the governments of the day would take this runway that the Supreme Court has given them and run a little faster and run a little harder. But, you know, <laughs> governments don't do that. And so we're Canadian, yeah. And yeah, we're Canadian. We're going to ponder this for a while. Joanna, you come in as a layperson uh, from the outsider, a journalist. Of course, that means you love stories and, and telling stories and writing stories. But really, who takes on a book about medical assistance in dying? <laughs> well, Jean's husband and my husband have known each other for a billion years. They went to boarding school <laughs> together. So I knew Jean and I would listen to her tell these stories as she began to do this process, as she began a, a year long course of study and how to do it. And then her first few years of doing it. And it was fascinating, obviously. And, yeah. and then there was one particular patient the one patient in the book that I got to meet while she was still alive, almost everybody else I met through their family and friends, the stories they would tell me after Jean had already provided for them. But the one person who was still alive, who knew the date of her death was Yolanda. And she was a woman in her fifties, but she'd been sick since she was 15 years old. And she had a very rare lung disease, but she was also a medical professional. She Her job was to make sure that medical studies were conducted accurately. And so she knew her way around the medical establishment. She knew all the ins and outs of how things worked. And she knew her reasons. And she was such a smart person. And Jean said to me, there's a person you need to meet if we're even going to think about doing this. You need to meet Yolanda. And you need to find out, at the very least, um, she'll be an article for you. Even if we don't proceed with the book, she will be a, a, a person who's so fascinating. And in fact, she absolutely was. She could only talk for about an hour at a time because her lung disease would just exhaust her. So we would meet periodically over a period of months uh, for an hour at a time. And over that time, I got to know all the ins and outs of her young life and her lung disease and her reasons. And her reasons were so well thought out and she had such certitude and uh, it just it just cemented my sort of layperson's feeling that obviously this was an important thing that people needed to have access to and then remarkably Yolanda invited me to be there for her provision and that just changed everything for me because watching how it worked watching how Jean had to walk into the room <laughs> remember I, I Jean was there before I was and I walked in and Jean said, well, we're having a bit of a mop, which meant that everyone was like in tears. But they were also dancing and they were playing music and there were people had champagne and people had like it was an incredible atmosphere. And then this moment where the time comes and, mm -hmm. and to watch Jean and Yolanda, I mean, I honestly don't think I've ever seen two people be that brave. And it, it hit me that Jean has to be that brave every single time. And, yeah. you know, I knew that that this was a book that had to happen. You do have to be that brave every single time, Jean. And, and a lot of people struggle with that. Uh, I I went to, you know, through this with a friend uh, last year, and there were many of people gathered for for the ceremony and the procedure uh, and right to the very end, just could not get their heads around this. Um, they they knew that she had made the decision of sound mind. They were happy for it was what she wanted. Nobody wished a, a long, painful death on her, but it was just 
you, you know, doctors are there to save lives, not take them. Yeah, it, it's it's amazing to me, uh, and and I and I speak for myself as much as I speak for family members um, and people who are there. We have we have no real sense of an end. Um, it, it's very hard, and and I I learned this like literally um, on on the first provision I did, which was Joe. Um, you know, having sort of injected the drugs and having sat and waited for the five minutes, and then you know checked his heartbeat and checked his his eyes to make sure the pupils were fixed and dilated. I stood up and I said, uh, "It is finished." And two minutes later. Um, one of his friends, one of his his bridegroom friends, um, mm-hmm. who had been with him for all of these years, came up to me and he said, "Is he dead?" And it, it's it's kind of like that that woman in Newfoundland I talked to last week who didn't know about assisted dying. I suddenly realized he doesn't know he's dead. And then since then I have become very clear. I don't say he's passed; it's, he's passed on. I say he is dead. Yeah. Or I say time of death is. Yeah. And I have to fix it. I have to fix it in their mind. I have to fix it in my mind as well when I speak with the coroner. But it does, it, it takes this whole concept of what is an end of life. And it lets you know that you you haven't walked there yet. You haven't walked the walk. We spend a lot of time ahead of it saying, do we pass on? Do we yeah. go someplace else? Is there an afterlife? What happens? That's right. <laughs> All of it, you know. But, you know, hands reach out across life to death. Um and I think a lot of time, it's about how how do you transit that? How do I do it? How do I do it when I know somebody, somebody that I have just ended their life? Is that it? Um, is there something going forward? Do I go forward with them, you know, or do I go back? Um, do I hold back to all those memories and all the things that people need to comfort themselves when they say it, it was a good death or he had it his way, or he's not suffering anymore. We we have to frame the whole thing always in our exactly. mind. The yeah. end, the end. But you still need to do that. I mean, at at we, this is a medical procedure when all is said and done. And so you know, you for people who uh, want or need to be there for whatever reason, and they see the process and they see the the staged uh, injections, they still need to know that's an end. I sat there with my friend and held her hand for precisely the reason you talk about, which is, am I sort of going with her for a while just to make sure, you know, it's okay or because we don't know. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know what that experience is inside. So uh, the thing that I witnessed was uh, I felt like Jean walks somebody to a door and then sort of stands there and waves goodbye as that person yeah. passes through the door. It is yeah. very much a, an ushering to a threshold. Yeah. yeah. And please write and tell us about it if you can. Right? Yeah. <laughs> what is anything? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Give us a call. Yeah. Right. Right. If you get work. Uh, well, considering uh, how I, considering how quickly it's done, and and you will have yes. witnessed this, Pam. Uh, because we choose to use intravenous sites and we choose to make sure that the drugs get in as quickly as we can possibly do that. Um, and and there's lots of reasons for that um, so that people do not end up, you know, extending it on and on and on, which is some people's choice when they say, not only do I want control, 
I want, I want to do it myself. I want, I want you to pour me the drink and I want to drink it myself. And then I don't, I don't want IV lines. I don't want, I want that much bodily autonomy that I will do it myself. Yeah. Um, and we debated this back and forth um, on the forum and the forum is a secure site across Canada for people who These are, are doing- for people like you that yeah. provide oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So and you're constantly working through. We are always kind of protocols. trying to sort out yeah. what's the problem if somebody says, you know, I want you to give it me in the cup. And, and we had decided just as part of clinical practice standards and trying to maintain real excellence and consistency um, that if somebody is given it to drink and we sit there for the hour and it doesn't happen, then we in fact proceed to put a, put an IV line in or or somehow find a way to administer the drugs and make sure that the job gets done. So it is a medical procedure, and as once you once you define it as a medical procedure, doctors turn put on a different hat. They yes. become doctors, um, and and I think that was the I think that was the tangle between. Johanna and myself all the time. She say, "Well, how did it feel? What do you mean? How did it feel? I did it. You know, this is my job. This is what doctors do. And you don't think about everything. You just know it is about efficiency and it is about accuracy and it is about making Doing it sure right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then that, of course, was what what um, it's very important. You know, the doctors who do this work." they're very certain that it's the right thing to do. And so I think for a long time in the, in the um, Canadian association of made assessors and providers, the forum that Jean's talking about, I think in the beginning of that forum, everybody was very much into how do you start more than one IV line? Do you, how do you bring extra drugs? Do you, how do you talk to the family before and after it was very procedural and only after it was established and only after it began to work and work well, would they allow themselves to even talk about their feelings? And now I think that they're open and they can talk about the fact that yes, they're doctors and yes, they're doing a very essential medical procedure, but it also impacts them as human beings. And so they have to walk that really complicated line because you know it, it's such a difference the medical assistance in death versus suicide. And when Jean and I were beginning to choose the patients for the book, it struck both of us how every single one of them had either thought about committing suicide or had tried committing suicide and hadn't succeeded. And the difference for them was palpable. They did not want to commit suicide. They didn't want to do something alone in a room that might not work, that was frightening, that made them feel guilty, that made them feel separated from everyone else you know they wanted something that was an extension of their medical care and that their families could be involved in and then in fact there was no shame there was joy in it in a way and release and relief and absence of guilt and and the fact that it is a medical procedure part of your medical care gives them that yeah and we the the situation requires that not only is that patient and we'll we'll explore this in a little bit later is that patient certain and asked in the very final moments of their life are you are you sure uh, we're going down this road um and and then the moment that it's over you as a medical professional gene have to get on the phone you, you have to have the coroner you have to have the second medical person there to verify they need to talk to a civilian in the household like 
we then kind of turn it into this quite, you know, um, it, it's not even the care that comes with, with medical care. This becomes now the bureaucratic part of it. Yeah. I, and, and usually it's usually, in fact, it's only me. Um, I, I think from the very beginning, because I was working in the community in particular. Yeah. Um, and, and even more after and through COVID, the nurses are incredibly stressed. Um, I haven't put an IV line in in 40 years. I, I would never want to subject a, a really frail, sick person to me starting an IV. Um, so I always count on these nurses arriving. Um, and, and we have worked it out through the years that that can they come the morning up? And I'll even change my time to come in. If they can't get there until 10, instead of coming in at 9 or 8 in the morning, I'll come later. It's about doing everything as compactly as you can, but then they come and go. They get in, get out. Yeah. Um, so usually when I arrive, there is just myself, the patient, and whoever of the family members or, or friends that they have elected to have with them. So it's it's very often a very solo procedure from the from the yeah. physician's point of view. Um, once I've called the coroner, um, the coroner and, and the coroner, coroner, um, mm -hmm. really now is represented by 12, kind of 12, because it keeps growing, nurse practitioners. Um, yeah. who only handle MAID. So if we're doing 3,000 um, you know, MAID procedures in the year in Ontario, for instance, um, every single case becomes on the file of one of these nurse practitioners and leave it to a nurse. They do everything meticulously <laughs> and they go through every line and sentence and all the review records. So the average number of pages I send into the coroner's office is something between 40 and 80. Because I wow. have to detail all the every yeah. all the procedures that have framed my opinion uh, and my decision and the second assessor's decision all have to kind of be put together to be presented to one of those nurses. This is the point that that we always come back. I sit on the special joint parliamentary committee on this. And we have people that are always saying, well, you can't just, you know, wake up in the morning and decide you want made. I mean, we've got to have some precautions and just say, there are so many precautions. Believe me, this cannot accidentally happen. Oh my goodness. And no, no. As I said, I think, as I said last night, and this is not a dial of death process. You know, you know, it is, it is not easy um, to have an assisted death. And I'm, I'm the first person to say that. What's entailed is, is a lot of work. And yeah. what is necessary and essential for people to know is that the work that needs to be done will be done um, because I'm, I'm the one who does it. You know, that's, and that's you have to do it because this has to be by the book or you're in trouble because this stuff still exists around the edges in the criminal code. Yeah, it, well, yeah. it has to be done by the book because of yeah. me um and and that's because i also must tread this this moral burden line of has right. enough been done here um yeah. and especially around around the issues of chronic uh, disease states and chronic illnesses where you're not you know slipping into a road to death um it will become even more so around mental disorders where you're not necessarily slipping into a predictable trajectory to death and certainly um, will come up around uh, around advanced requests. 
Yeah. Yeah. One thing that's been interesting to me watching this from the outside is, you know, Gene always said the coroner speaks for the dead and you, and they are the dead's fiercest advocate and you have to do everything keeping that in mind. And as Gene provided made over the years, um, the things that she's doing to ensure that it is the correct thing to do have only grown. Like you would think that over six years of doing it, it would become streamlined and the opposite has been true. What, what has happened is, you know, I think Jean, fair to say you used to do your assessments a little more quickly. Now you take more time with every assessment. Now you bring in more people for every question, you know, uh, decisions that she might've made on her own in the beginning. She's consulting with more and more and more people all the time to make sure that every service has been tried and exhausted and that every service that hasn't been tried is considered. And so it, it I think it speaks really well to May doctors and providers that they're not trying to do it as quickly as possible. They're actually trying to make it as, as full and complicated a procedure before they get there to make sure they have looked through every alternative with the patient and and that this is what the patient really needs. I want to pick up on a couple of points. Uh, The first is um, mental illness as a a sole underlying underlying cause. Because we are there now. That is going to be the law of the land uh, in the uh, early months of the next year. And and I want to come back to uh, advance requests in a moment because that's my my particular issue. (laughs) But on on the... um, on the mental illness, there is still, again, um, there's a sense that a we're we're still litigating or relitigating uh, the whole concept of made. It has reopened that debate again. Okay, so it's one thing if someone is in the final stages dying of cancer, if they're just depressed, quote, and I'm putting that in air quotes, just depressed. Are you sure that this is the right thing to do? How have you come to that in your head, Jean? And then, Joanne, I want to hear from you on that too. Yeah, it, it come well. I mean, the issues around mental, any mental disorder, um, and you know, I, and I think we, I think it's being reframed from mental illness, which is just too, yeah. too, too broad. We all have mental illness um, <laughs> at times. Um, uh, I think it is now being reframed into kind of mental disorder, which means it's got a classification of its own, 137. Um, And so neurodevelopmental issues, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, they're not included. So we're already extracting and refining and saying, what what do we really mean when we're talking mental disorder? And that begins to reframe the entire discussion about, well, what what is the issue? Uh, And not just the issue, but the issue for the person who's requesting. Um, And I will always, always come back to who is the person requesting and what is the suffering? Because, you know, as I said last night, I can feel suffering. I can hear suffering. Um, And I think that's the first and always the first sort of format. Who is the person who is asking? What are the context in which she's asking it? And then you get to the mental disorder part of it. So what are what is the story behind this? And I think within the current framework of eligibility and safeguards, I think it can all be worked within that. I don't think we have to reinvent a whole new track in here, a whole new kind of pathway that says, if you have a mental disorder, you're in track three. <laughs> you know, I think within track two, the, the specialists that have to be involved in this 
who you must consult, what you must consult them about in terms of length of time, duration, numbers of treat. We do that for chronic illness already right now. We're already yeah. doing it. Um, and the fact that we're sort of, is it, are we really saying that people with a mental disorder are, do not despair? Are we really saying that, you know, I mean, un, unless they are, they're not in pain, commanded or, by God, you know, you, that you must yeah. go and put yourself on a cross somewhere, um, you know, and kill yourself in terms of sort of, you know, retribution. Uh, I mean, that, that is the disorder which we would back away from and say, we must intervene here. So I think we have got already within the structures that we've got, the necessary guidelines, the necessary safeguards. Um, and I think that, I think the biggest issue from my perspective is going to be the number of physicians willing to kind of walk that path yeah. because it is not going to be easy. Yeah. And that's the issue already. The Canadian public has embraced this so willingly. I mean, we, we have 83, 85% of the population yeah. that's in, in support of this yeah. and not nearly enough of the youths in the world uh, that are prepared to do this. Yeah. And, and I, and I think for all the reasons people get a little jumpy around, you know, is it too easy now? Is it a slippery yeah. slope? Uh, I mean, these are the questions that came up right, right from day one are the vulnerable protected are the people who are most disadvantaged and least likely to be able to kind of get help. Um, are they now going to be going to offer this really easy exit? Uh, you know, it's, it's easier to end your life than it is to kind of find you. A yeah. Um, I mean, if people think that the made assessors and providers don't, don't live these things, <laughs> if they think yeah. they were somehow kind of categorically, you know, in a different camp and aren't aware of, of what the issues are or what needs to happen societally. Um, it's more when you realize that you say, well, all available. Well, is all available enough of a reason to let somebody decide to choose death? I mean, there's my dilemma. That will yeah. always be my dilemma. If we're saying, well, if it's not available, then it doesn't count. Well, it does count. It does count. Um, and I remember I had a I had the brother of, of one of my patients up in Sudbury, and it was talking about available means of, of treatment. And, and he's a, he was a cop in 52 division. He says to me, Doc, come on. He says, I, I'm, I'm at 52. I know what's available down here. And I know he's not getting it up there. And he said, how am I, how am I to determine that he's got what he needs? And I said, that's not your job. That's my job. It's my job to look at what's available and what he needs and go through that with him and try and find him the resources. And I, you won't, Pam, you won't believe the resources that I kind of tackle when I sort of start into this because <laughs> yeah. all available. Um, and this is when I kind of really learned what really is available is a human being. One human being can make a difference. Yeah. If, if you're there for the fight, that's exactly what has to happen and i and 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 that that is the argument we hear that i mean i come from rural saskatchewan you know this has been an issue for me for a long time because if you're in a depressed state or if you're in end stage of cancer you're not going to jump in your car and drive to the city and uh, see if you can find you know a maid doctor without any you know access to that Anyway, we're we're doing tangents here, but Joanna, I want to come back to you. And then I am going to come back to the book because it has been nominated for an award as a public policy book, 
which I think is a really important decision uh, distinction. I mean, it is there are amazing stories here, but it's also an issue we have to tackle. So when you have this ongoing relationship with Jean as she wrestles all of these issues, then what do you think about things like uh, mental disorder as as a reason? Yeah, I mean, I understand. Jean's thinking that it's going to be very, very complicated for the doctors. And yeah. I understand that the public has fear around this uh, issue. But as a journalist, just observing how it has worked so far, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada makes this nine to zero decision and then says, over to you, doctors. <laughs> and the doctors from scratch have had to figure this out. And they formed that um CAMAP forum, they discussed it, they worked it out. They themselves were the ones who said, you know, every province does this, but we need a national take yeah. on it as well. They developed that. So, I, I mean, I have every reason to believe that the doctors will also figure out the next iterations as they come. Um, I think that in the beginning, it's probably likely that fewer people will be approved than not approved. You know, I think that there, people are going to take their time and figure out who should be approved and who shouldn't be approved. But I also think that it's really important, and this, this is maybe the public policy part of our book, that more doctors be encouraged to do this work. Because I think what Jean was hoping for in the beginning was that all family doctors would incorporate it into their family practice. Right part of their cradle to grave care. The continuum of service, right? Yes, because they're the ones who know their patients. And I think if we can possibly encourage more family doctors to do this work, then these issues like um, medical disorder as the sole underlying condition, then the doctors and the patients will be more familiar with one another. And these dialogues will happen more easily. And and, you know, Jean said something that really stuck with me about when she was delivering babies and that there was a time where there were suddenly lots of lawsuits around um, the delivery of babies. And so fewer and fewer doctors were doing it and they were content to hand it over to the doctors who were willing to do it. And Jean said that she and her partner, who was Carolyn Bennett at the time, were doing 13 deliveries in a weekend. And Jean said this line, and no one was coming up behind us. And that line really stuck with me. No one's coming up behind us. And someone has to come up behind the doctors who are currently doing MAID and support them in this as we go forward, because the numbers are only increasing every year of people who want it. And so the more I really believe that the more family doctors who do this work, then not that this is ever going to be easy for these mental disorder determinations, but the easier it will be because they will know their people and they will know what they need. And, and that I think is going to be crucially important. The, the issue of an advanced request different from the issue of advanced directives. Cause again, the language becomes important. It's not like I'm going in for surgery and, and, and so I'm going to say, if I'm uh, you know, if it's I have no DNR. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but it but it is on the continuum in a sense. If we're prepared to accept a DNR or a directive, then to me it has always made sense that an advance uh, request would be um, should be available. This is personal for me. I'm sure you all know. Like uh, my grandmother, my mother, 
went through this, died a long, slow death uh, from dementia, from Alzheimer's. Uh, the woman who died was not my mother. Uh, she was a, a woman that I love. But I mean, this was a woman who was a high school teacher, always dressed to the nines, very active, very engaged. And this was just not an option uh, for her. My father, the other way, uh, a long death, uh, slower death with cancer, but still just not an available option at the time. So just, Jean, if you can, make the argument for this, which is why I shouldn't be able to say, knowing that this is a likely outcome for me on de dementia, given the family history, why can't I say now to you, to my doctor, under the following circumstances, when I no longer am me, when I can't recognize anybody, when I don't know where I am or who I am, and there are objective observances of that, please, please um, end my life in a peaceful way, because I only want to live a life when I can be and enjoy the, the people around me. So right. oh, <laughs> what's the problem? So, where, so where's the glitch? <laughs> yeah, where's the glitch? Okay, because the glitch at the moment is that you must consent in the moment. And what you're talking about is, well, how can I consent for you, you know, to, to put me down? Because this is the word yeah. people use, you know, it's amazing. Yes. People talk about being put down like their dogs. Um, when they, when they, when they, so we're more generous them. with our animals. Just <laughs> let's more, oh, and we won't, that, that's the next, that's the card. Because <laughs> um, it's so peaceful. Uh, but what you're asking for is for somebody to walk in who doesn't know you, um, because we're talking, you're talking to me now about what you want. You're going to define yep. one through eight. When these things happen to me, yep. you have the go ahead. I permit you to put me down. Um, and that's kind of how this legislation is being framed. Uh, you must define it, but with always the assumption that it might not occur and for five years, seven years, 10 years, who's going to be there? Yep. Who's going to be there to speak on your behalf? Because let's say you've done all this, you have signed off on it with your lawyer. It's been witnessed by, you know, somebody in your family who says I am. And updated regularly. And updated yeah. regularly. I think, I think what Quebec wants is it, they want it updated every two years or something like that as a standing. They also want it registered. I mean, if it sits in your lawyer's office, Right. Um, and then you're, and, and the problem, of course, is everyone retires, you know, right. so the doctor looking after you, the lawyer looking after you, the, the maid assessor who comes in and sits with you and says, okay, I understand all these criteria. Let's go through it again. The document is here. We understand that this is what we're signing off on. It has been registered and notarized and whatever, and it sits in the lawyer's office. Yeah. In that's the meantime, good. you are moved into a home. Right. 40 miles away. In, a, in another province. In another, <laughs> maybe, because your yeah. family has come to take charge of you and they take you back home and then they realize that you need a lot more care and suddenly you're in a home far away. Yeah. Who activates that? What if it's 10 years from now? And this is the kind of thing that we're talking about. So um, we, we actually don't have good big family networks. We don't have Uncle Joe and Aunt Mary down the street who says, no, 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 you know what she wants. Um, yeah, nobody may know you in that lovely retirement home where you're being cared for by strangers who are very happy yeah. to come and wipe your bum and push the food, yeah. in your mouth, but there's no connection. 
but who's to come and say, my aunt, my mom has this document. So activate the document, pull in the team again, confirm that she really is demented, confirm that she meets all of these criteria, that she doesn't know me and she really can't feed herself and she doesn't know where she is. Now, end her life. So it's a very different construct. That's not me looking into your eyes and saying I'm no, no, exactly. I'm, I'm actually, I'm putting legislation on the books in the next. Well, we have already introduced it to try and at least get it to the stage where we can have the conversation. Is it two years or five years? Who gets to make that final decision? What do we do? Do we post it on the internet as opposed to in a lawyer's office? So somebody can. I mean, there are real technical issues yeah. um, but it's the concept even even that you you want people to embrace which is because dementia alzheimer's is the catch-22 before you're diagnosed you can't ask and after you're diagnosed you're not competent now i know there's some gray area in there but um you know it's but, an issue. but many many people have have cognitive decline and and this yeah. is i mean this is the the difficult thing is, you know, people never use the word dementia. We don't, we're too polite. We're, we're much too nice. We may not talk about dementia anymore. We talk about the umbrella of Alzheimer's. Yes. Um, and I can, I can be very clear with you. Most people don't know what that is. They just know that, oh, that, you know, that's when somebody hasn't got a mind anymore. The minute you say Alzheimer's, it's like, well, whatever that is, you know, but it's not me yeah. because I, I only just forget dates. Yeah. I forget dates already. I'm already there. But um <laughs> But, you know, so, so basically people just amble along. And for the most part, um, you know, people will just amble along until they die from some other causes. I think it was Dr. Gordon at, at Baycrest said, we don't have to cure Alzheimer's. We just have to delay it because people are going to die. Nobody is going to go on and on and on. But the reality is most people are way, way, way down the road of dementia before they know that they're not going to qualify. Right. To consent. And that's why you need, that's why somehow quality of life, the ability to be who you are, needs to be a criteria. And that's, that's difficult. That is difficult until you have the conversation with people about yeah. what is the quality of life you had. And I actually followed, um, and, and what, what we, I, have done, um, you know, around the CAMAT form, around setting kind of these guidelines taken the very long view of trajectory to death in with Alzheimer's. I go up to 10 years um, and I honestly feel I can reasonably justify it to the corner when I say this person is eligible because they have a trajectory to death that's within 10 yeah. years. And that's my idea. Um, and then I really follow them. I follow them and follow them. Yeah. And when I think, boy, we are very close to the line and they are still able to say, this is what I want, Dr. Jean, yeah. this is what I need from you. I say, well, now it's time. Now we must set the date. Because so you must say yes to me in the moment. Yeah. So I, again, to both of you. So Jean, you're 80. Um, <laughs> and, and Johanna, you're not quite that close. <laughs> I'm it, 60. I'm 60. So I'm looking at 80. <laughs> so is it from what you know of, of Jean's matter of factness and embrace of this, what, like, what do you now think? about that is that something you want an option to exercise yeah there there's a there's a um chapter in our book um a person called sheila whose daughter uh lisa 
was her medical power of attorney. And Sheila had a memory disorder and knew it was progressive and knew that she was losing herself. And she was willing to have made, but Lisa, her daughter, wasn't. At Lisa wasn't yeah. ready. And by the time Lisa was ready, it was too late for Sheila to give consent. Late and Le- Lisa's very heartbroken now you know, that, that her mom is living in this way. She knows she's not herself. She knows she's not her mom. And, and Lisa would do it now if she'd had the ability to do it. And, and I have to, I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot, Senator, but like, do you feel there was a point with your mom where you would have been willing to do it? I was so willing. It was just not an option. And I had, we, we have a very open family. So we had all this discussion like 10, 15 years earlier. If this had been an option, there would have been no question. Right. Right. So I think in your case, in the case of Lisa, you know, where you have someone who's very close to the person and really knows the person through and through and is willing to sit with the doctor and say, I am certain of this. I am certain this is what my loved one would want. I think those cases should be available, but I, but I think it's going to be very hard to, to get there. But well, one, you know. of, one of my friends who is also 80 something, who is suffering from cognitive decline or dementia. And, and he is very active on this whole issue. Ron Posno, I'm sure, you know, uh, his name, he's out and about, and he wants that list of eight. And so that there can be check marks, but Every time I have a conversation with him, what he says, and this is kind of the co-relationship between suicide and seeking made, that people with dementia deliberately take their own lives, drive into a wall, walk into the water, because they know they won't be able to give consent at the time. So they end up dying much earlier than is at all necessary. So they have the outcome they want, Jean. So that's not good either. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, that was um, that was what uh, Lisa Genovese wrote about in uh, yep. in her book, um, and the movie the movie did not do justice to, yep. to where that woman was. Uh, speaking of walking into the water, she she couldn't. She wasn't. She was too afraid. But she had this wonderful construct in her own mind of of how she would meet her own criteria when she couldn't remember her daughter's names. She would walk upstairs and take those pills that would give them to herself. She had a planned suicide mm-hmm. exit. Um, and unfortunately, she was interrupted on her way up the stairs and forgot why she was going up the stairs and so did not. Um, and, and that, to me, was just the most tremendous tragedy um, portrayed. I mean, it was portrayed in, a, in the novel, but it, it was unfortunately real life. Um, so I'm, I am talking last week in the middle of doing my ACLS course. <laughs> so talk about sort of saving lives and, and somebody, yes. and, and I was telling somebody why I was doing it. And they said, well, my gosh, thank you for your service. And I thought to myself, I hear that word. I hear that a lot, but not usually in the context <laughs> of saving lives, more in the context. But we were talking and I, could, I did tell them what I was doing. And I said, um, do you remember... Um, do you remember the movie that Judy Dench was in, Iris? And he said, mm-hmm. of, course, of course I remember. It was, it disturbed me for weeks after. And I said, it has never left my mind. 
yeah. that that moment when when somebody who is basically losing their mind and knows they are losing their mind yeah. and that desperation to get out you know? yeah so yeah it's no wonder sure. it's no wonder people walk into the water yeah um, but i that's that's our point to not not have to have that i mean yeah, that is such a terrible desperation. That's such a terrible. Yes, that's moment. pain and suffering that is completely unreasonable. We've. I, I want to come back to this book because it was quite funny um, last night to hear you two, and again, even this morning as we were just discussing this before we hit record. So the book is dedicated to Yolanda, yes. whose generosity and grace in her quest for a dignified death prompted an inner journey and this book. And Joanna, that is quite literally the case. You kind of threatened Gene <laughs> using Yolanda to make sure <laughs> that the stories got told. Why don't you yes, give us well, a little insight into that? <laughs> so in my defense, in my head, it was already a book. And <laughs> Yeah, she was. She always she goes for the big stuff all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Having met with Yolanda, and you know, determined that uh, she would be willing to be the subject of an article if it was only an article. Right. I felt that it, you know, doing my due diligence, that I had to make sure that if it was going to be a book, she would be fine with it being a book too. Right. And and uh, that's a good cover story, Joanna. Stick with that. <laughs> but I'm gonna. I'm gonna. That she said she would prefer it was a book because yeah. she didn't want it to be only about her, that she wanted yeah. her story to be one of many stories. And so at that moment, <laughs> I was so very certain that it was a book that we just, Yolanda and I just proceeded apace as if it was 100% yes, going to be a book. And then we just had to gently, gently coax Jean to come along with us. Um, and then in the course of writing the book, you know, Jean just was very patient focused and very, you know, had taken extensive, what a gift to a writer, to a co-writer to have Jean's medical notes, because she just knew everything about these people and, and had recorded magnificent details about their conversations and things like that. And so she was very like, and the patient and the patient and the patient, and I would say repeatedly, you know, okay, but, and then you, and then where are you? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Like, what did you do? And let, we need to put in some of your biography. And Jean would be like, my biography? What does my biography have to do with any of this? And I would say, well, I'm pretty sure that people who don't know you who are reading the book need to know a little bit about you so they can understand yeah. your mindset in this process. And every single time I would say, you know, well, I think, Jean, we should include these details about you, like how you climb mountains and how you're a backpacker and how you have these fantastic parties where you make lasagna for 700 and at, and, and at, every, at 80 we're at just 80. gonna say at 80 yeah <laughs> and every single time i would say i want to add this personal biographical yeah. moment gene would send back an email that was just a series of zeds just like ah oh, snore like i can't cope with this part of myself so i would say that the toughest subject in the book <laughs> is gene <laughs> and that includes, but you're the people, that includes the people who've already died because yeah, their families yes. were more willing to talk because their families were more willing she is herself well there's so many amazing stories in there and i thought first we'd go through them but you know what we're not going to be because i want people to read the book 
Uh, we've talked about the issues around it. Okay, I'm just going to hold that up. Is that does that cover go the right way, or is it actually backwards? Yeah, I can read okay. it. And I'm going to say, and this is uh, this is not a conflict of interest. This is my judgment. It's on the front cover. Powerfully honest and compelling. This book tackles the tough questions head on. Senator Pamela Wallen. That's what I wrote. <laughs> about this book, and I genuinely believe it. I hope everybody uh, takes a moment. If you have someone in your life that's aging, if you're even just starting to think about it yourself, educate yourself and inform yourself and get inside the heads of those who are doing the heavy lifting on this. And and you two are right up there. So thank you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Every, everything you do to help put it out, to make it a conversation and not something yeah. that people just kind of turn away from all yeah. the time yeah. um, is going to move the conversation forward for sure. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say the same, Senator, like, thank you for making this a conversation because I think the more people participate in the conversation, you know, it's naturally a scary subject to people, but I think the more we can dispel the myths and the fears, then the more... Yeah real the conversation can be. And without putting too fine a point on it, it is inevitable. We are all going to die. And, uh, and it, it is having that sense of control, I think, um, I think will help us all. Well, Thank you. it's having a sense of goodness. Yes. With the good death. Yeah, yeah that's, that was the other line. Um, and I think you were talking about it made take someone's life but first it gives them back it gives it back to them so that they have control and and choice the last doctor lessons in living from the front lines of medical assistance in dying dr jean marmario and johanna schneller ladies thank you um we'll talk again i know on this very talk thank you and that it is it for no nonsense with pamela wallen for this week see you soon